0: The Balance and Fall Special Interest Group of the Academy of Neurologic Physical Therapy, a component of APTA, is bringing you this interview today. Hello, and welcome to this podcast episode. I'm Julie Schwartfeger, your PT neuro nerd, and I'm here today interviewing Dr. Darcy Reisman. She's the department chair and professor, as well as the academic director for Neurologic and Older Adult Clinic at the University of Delaware. And today we're going to talk specifically about the latest research from Dr. Reisman and colleagues, which builds on her 2009 research using split belt treadmill adaptation and showing that this transfers to overground and people with stroke. The current research study is called Fluid Cognition Relates to Locomotor Switching in Neurotypical Adults, Not Individuals After Stroke. Which was published in january of 2022 in the journal of neurologic physical therapy so with this darcy this research builds on your prior split belt treadmill uh studies and also has some and uh, exciting enhancements some some big adaptations uh, building on that that um I think we talked about this a little bit as we prepared this pot for this podcast interview. Uh, I think there's some takeaways that clinicians with or without a split belt treadmill in their clinic, which is a big hurdle if you don't have one, um, there's still some great takeaways for motor learning after stroke um, and a lot to learn from this uh, very elegantly put together study. Um, and there's a lot, I think, of key concepts and terms in here that a busy clinician may really benefit from having us dive into a little bit. But with that, before I do too much of the talking, I wanna I'll let you introduce your study and give a little overview. And then I've got lots of questions for you that I think will help us dig into some of the good details.
1: Yeah, so uh, thank you so much, Julie. The um, really excited about this work. This is um, uh, sort of a new direction for our lab We um, have been studying motor learning for a long time, uh, motor learning, particularly in people living with chronic stroke. And um, we really see a lot of variability in um, patients' motor learning abilities. And um, really we're looking to try to understand that variability better. And that's how we really began looking at cognition as a potential source of that variability because there'd been some work in healthy, older adults in the upper extremity, really suggesting that um, even in healthy older adults, that their cognitive abilities really um, potentially were related to their ability to, to benefit from certain kinds of motor learning. And so that was really the motivation for this, was to start to understand the variability we were seeing in motor learning in people living with stroke, because if you don't understand that variability, it becomes very difficult, right? to decide when a patient is sitting in front of you, what the maybe perhaps more optimal learning strategy for that person would be.
0: Um, so and so important. that's that's really yes. where
1: we where we how we got going down this path of looking at um, these fluid cognitive abilities in conjunction with motor learning.
0: Oh great. And so that brings me to my first key concept for our busy clinicians. Let's give them the the review of cognition, right? Because there's the crystalline or crystallized cognition and fluid cognition. uh, And this is specifically looking at the fluid cognition composite score using the freely available, thanks to our tax dollars, NIH toolbox. Um, And and again, just a, a nice bucket of what is fluid cognition. That includes those frontal lobe domains, right? Executive functions, processing speed, problem solving and attention. Uh, all together yep. make up fluid cognition, but can you talk a little bit about that and how it differs and how we'd assess for that? Yeah, so I think,
1: um, so we really wanted to use, the reason we really wanted to look at fluid cognition is because um, it does encompass um, many domains of, of cognition and, and this is really what was our first pass at this. And so we know that many of different domains of cognition can be impacted by stroke. And so we want to look at fluid cognition as sort of a global measure because it really, that as as opposed to crystallized cognition, fluid cognition really reflects someone's ability to problem solve and learn new things in the absence of prior knowledge and experience. And so we feel like this is the type of cognition that probably most aligns with what we're kind of expecting to happen in motor learning, right? Um, Where you're really taking in information and problem solving um, in the absence of, you know, exact knowledge in an area. Crystallized cognition, we think more about as knowledge. So, you know, maybe you learned the 50 capitals of the 50 states, right? That's part of crystallized cognition. Um, and so fluid cognition is, is more the type of cognition people are using in everyday problem solving, which is probably quite relevant to rehabilitation. Um, as you said, it encompasses... Um, five domains, um, working memory, attention, executive function, episodic memory, and processing speed. And we measure it, um, using the NIH toolbox, which as you said, is freely available.
0: Right. And, um, did you use, I think there's an Apple app or tablet yep. that you can use that, that so, makes it free and also lets you compute the yep. scores very readily.
1: Yep. So we use, we just did it on the, uh, we had uh, an iPad. We just did it on the iPad.
0: Brilliant. And how long did that take for uh, the participants to complete that?
1: Yeah, it's a, that's a great question. It does depend on on the patient a little bit, um, but typically speaking, you can get that done in about twenty, maybe thirty minutes if they need a lot of breaks. But it's it, so it's not it's not nothing. It does take time. Um, but again, remember, it's giving you um, you know in those twenty minutes you're getting a, you're getting a lot of information um, because. We did not use it this way, but you just in case people are interested, you do get scores for individual domains, which could be really helpful.
0: Yeah, that's nice. And of course, in a busy PT practice, 20 minutes to look at a fluid cognition composite is unlikely, however, if there's some small study designs uh, benefiting from doing one domain, which would be maybe five minutes or all right. twenty minutes, uh, th- very doable. And again, that that free factor, if you've got a tablet, is uh, is pretty makes it even more readily able to uh, be adapted into a small clinical trial.
1: Yeah, and measures of fluid cognition. If your patients are receiving neuropsychological testing, which I know, especially like an inpatient rehab, does does probably not happen as much as it should, but does happen. Um, you know. Fluid fluid cognition um, is something that would, would likely be measured. And so you might even not have to do it yourself, but you could get that information.
0: Yes. So wonderful. So another way to get that would be to reach out to your neuropsychi- neuropsychologist, your speech yep. therapist. Exactly. Um, which is another, a whole nother way that this can be gathered without us having to do the lift. Um, Correct. So so taking fluid cognition and translating it into what does that look like in our stroke patients? I always teach students, uh, you know, stroke patients fall, they can fall from sitting, they can fall, it's amazing how they can fall from static positions where you think people can't fall. And certainly in walking, uh, when they're using this in their life. So uh, in your study uh, manuscript, you, you mentioned, you know, Uh, we need to transition to new walking patterns in response to those environmental cues for long periods of time. And no one's really looked at this in stroke um, Mm -hmm. up until this study. So the example you give is when we're walking on an icy sidewalk, an individual Mm -hmm. must modify their walking behavior the entire time while on the ice and not just in a single step, which is what Mm -hmm. prior studies have done. So that in itself is is quite a, a, a nice step forward at looking at a new area. And I think there's some other things in your study design that um, you do, You have a, a, a brilliant um, figure in there that shows these little eyes with a cross through them and some without. <laughs> so talk about this two, it's a, two phases that participants had to go through, but talk yep. through how you design this. What is a participant experience?
1: Yeah, so um, essentially they're coming in and what we're doing is we're trying to get them to modify um, their step length based on visual feedback and so again it's not because we think you know step length is magic or there's something you know um that you know everybody needs to to modify their step length. it really is um we wanted to take a common um variable that therapists are often trying to manipulate um and use it really as a probe of someone's ability to learn using what we call strategic explicit learning. And what I mean by that is we were giving folks feedback. We wanted them to take a longer step with whatever leg took a shorter step at baseline, you know, in their normal walking. And we gave them a target that they were shooting for. And we, we explained to them exactly what, you know, they needed to do to, to hit the target, right? They need to take a longer step with, you know, X leg. And so that should feel very common to, to therapists. This is what we do, right? We tell people, we want you to take a longer up with this like maybe we put tape marks on the floor or you know we give this kind of really explicit feedback and very often it's visual and so we wanted to kind of mimic that in the lab and so folks walked under these conditions where they were getting this feedback they had this target they were trying to step to this target they were getting feedback on whether they hit the target or not then we wanted to test for what we called immediate retention so you take the feedback away. And um, you ask the person to just keep walking how they just learned, and you look to see you know can they keep doing that, and then you can look at that 24 hours later, and then you can also look at that um, you know when you're asking them to you know walk normally walk how you just learned and ask them to switch back and forth between different patterns. So there's a lot of of different ways you can you can use or you can test different aspects of what they learned. But the bottom line is we wanted this paradigm to kind of mimic. Things that are commonly done in
0: clinical practice. Okay, good. And just to kind of paint a picture of the the equipment that was used in this study, uh, yep. participant would be put on the split belt treadmill, yep. and the of course the belts are set at the different spe- uh, speeds, uh, and it's matched with a visual display, so a TV monitor with these these bars uh, that fill yep. up and go to a certain line, and if the participant takes the long enough step, they get to see the line turn green at the top because they've they yes. filled that bar um all the way. And it's um the the visual is is altered so that they have to take a longer step on the leg legit that tr- got it. Now after the they took do a shorter step. Yeah. Yes, thank you at baseline. And so right. after 12 minutes of the training, you go to removing those bars. Yep. And you tell them to just continue and the belt yep. is is keeps going the same way. And yep. then the following two minutes, they're asked to walk at their normal uh how they mm-hmm. were walking before. And this mm-hmm. is all done on the treadmill.
1: Correct. This is all done on the treadmill. And again, um the reason we do it on the treadmill is is basically just, you know, for very practical reasons, right? We just we need to we need to get a lot of steps and we need to be able to capture a lot of steps. Um there's no reason that i would again with this ex- kind of explicit strategic type of learning that we're doing there's no reason to think it would be different necessarily over ground because again remember they're 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 using the feedback they're using the instructions to modify their behavior the reason we do it on the treadmill is really just so we can we can get all the steps we want and can, and control the situation.
0: (laughs) Right. Yeah. We're all about control and research. Right. So I understand. And so my question related to that is, so now I'm in a clinic and I want to Mm -hmm. use the results of this because I know my stroke participants have some of those fluid cognition deficits, right? If I didn't, if I didn't believe it in, in my clinical experience, it was reinforced reading, reading the results of this study. And yep. so how do I take that without the split belt treadmill and the video display and all of that yep. cool stuff that yep. you were able to do in the lab?
1: It's super easy. I mean, this, this cool thing in the lab actually was generated out of our clinical experience of what we do, right? We, if, if you're trying to modify somebody, or if you would like to have somebody modify their step length to take a longer step, we use ladder, you know, the ladders on the floor, we use tape marks on the floor, we use obstacles where we're trying to get people to step further and step over the object. Anytime you're giving that kind of visual feedback, essentially you're giving, you know, what would be in our study the version of the target, right? Because you're telling them, oh, I want you to step to that tape marker, step over the rungs of this ladder, or step over this obstacle. And then the person, Gets the visual feedback of whether they did it or not, right? They either made it over the obstacle, they got the foot on the tape line, they got over the ladder wrong. Um, So that is exactly basically the same thing that we did in this study. And what the results of the study suggest, though, is if someone has fluid cognitive deficits, they're not, this is not necessarily the, the best way, right? To give them. To, to set up the learning experience because it may be more difficult for them. And so, you know, I would suggest perhaps in the in the clinic that we think about um, for these people with significant cognitive deficits, we think about other types of learning that we could take advantage of that don't necessarily have this person so heavily relying on this kind of visual feedback, explicit instruction—did I hit the target or not? Um, and so, you know, we can talk about some some ideas about what you could you could do instead. But that's pretty much what this what the study would suggest: is this kind of really explicit strategic learning that we do all the time in the clinic mm-hmm. may mm-hmm. not be the best kind of learning for people with these deficit cognitive deficits.
0: So I love this because there's that intuitive approach where we know what we want to see we know it's really mm-hmm. effective and getting the performance we want during a clinical yes. session right performance for yes. versus motor learning yes. we're getting it I saw your face light up because that's the big that's the big thing how do we make this translate into their life right so we're good at getting the performance we want in the clinic and we know those visual cues are like, they're like candy for physical therapists, right? Cause it's yep. so successful for most people. And yet it's uh, in people with stroke because of the fluid cognition that is often very compromised from what we're seeing in this study, um, it's not the right approach perhaps. perhaps. So that's big.
1: Yep. And I think I think that it, that's probably not a big surprise to most, most clinicians, right? I think that they, intuitively probably would would know this that that um, you know when you when you're really asking someone to develop these kind of strategies if their cognition isn't in, is, isn't intact or is pretty impaired that it's harder for them to develop these really effective strategies um, and but I mean it hadn't been shown it hadn't been looked at so
0: well and, and the other piece of that that I think is really germane to any clinical conversation is, as a, a busy physical therapist, am I getting the information on fluid cognition? Am I having am I taking the time to stop and go, let's assess that? Um, and if I am, how you know how or what resources might I add? So I get that com- with people coming in the door, because as you pointed out, crystalline or crystallized um, uh, uh, cognition is, is a different construct. And right. maybe they're a really smart person, and we know that, and we yeah. might be passing off some of the deficits yeah. we're seeing in the transfer of our motor learning as being motor and, and yeah. their, in there and what's what's underlying them when really it's this fluid cognition. So I think yeah. um, I think it's one of those nuanced areas of reevaluating a problem with this this added perspective of going, aha, let's really think about cognitive and specifically yeah. fluid. Um, and then get what we need, Um, hopefully from other practitioners that already did the heavy lifting.
1: (laughs) Right. No, I agree. I think, I mean, I think that's a challenge, right? Is in physical therapy um, is, is really, you know, we don't have all the time in the world to do every single clinical test we would like to do. And certainly cognition is not something that is, is usually the first thing that we're testing. Right. So hopefully again, this is where working with a team becomes really, really important. Um, this is actually bread and butter for a neuropsychologist, a speech and language pathologist. And, you know, I think, again, the more we understand the, the role of these cognitive deficits um, in, you know, of course they're affecting people's everyday participation and function, but now it looks like they're really affecting their, their, their motor recovery, right? Right. Oh gosh, even more reason that we need this information. We need to share this information with each other. Um, and you know, it can be a motivator to make to making sure that our folks maybe they don't have an obvious speech and language deficit, but maybe it's really important that we get some baseline cognitive testing on them,
0: right? Or and, if, and we I, if that referral, yes, um, or if we're finding that we're at a sticking point that we're blaming yep. on uh, you know Brunstrom stages, yep. right, or those yep. synergies it gives us another access point to say, wait a minute, maybe if I can't get around, right? What is it if you can't get through, push through the door, uh, unscrew the hinges, right? So we're we're trying to push through the door of the motor stages of recovery. And if that's not getting us anywhere, um, saying, okay, let's look at fluid cognition. Yeah. So um, you mentioned a little while ago, I feel like it was a teaser to say, so what are some things that we could do to change our treatment paradigm yeah. to, to be more successful for people with fluid cognition deficits as often happens in stroke? Um, so let's talk a little bit about those. So what does that busy clinician do if they're starting to go, aha, this could be fluid yeah. cognition, let me change my approach.
1: Yeah. So I, I really think that um, more implicit forms of motor learning um, are really underutilized in rehabilitation. And what I mean by that is this is the kind of motor learning where the person is figuring out um, the, the, the um, they're, they're learning through trial and error practice without that Overt feedback from the therapist, right? And so, things that you could think about that I think about with like step length. So, for example, if someone is taking a very short step on one side, one of the things you can do is you can put a TheraBand around their thigh of of the leg that's taking the shorter step. And every time they try to step with that leg, you pull back, so they have to they have to pull harder. You pro- you do that, you know, for. 15, 20 steps. Then you take the theraband off, and guess what happens, right? Now they are naturally taking a longer step because they're ne- they 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 don't they don't have that resistance anymore. That's called sensory motor adaptation. That's a in a, a form of implicit learning. You didn't have you didn't tell the person anything, you didn't give them any instructions. Their body learned through these more implicit processes, um, what to do. And so you know that is that's that's a, a good example. Um, there's something you know that that we well we know about from the principles of neuroplasticity, which is also a form of learning, use-dependent plasticity. It's a form of learning, and it basically means that when you repeat something over and over and over again, it actually it is it it actually um, becomes learned, right? And so we take some of these and it's it's another that's another implicit form of learning right so again you find the way like like you know using the theraband to get this person to produce the pattern and then you practice that pattern over and over and over again and that kicks in the use dependent plasticity which is another form of implicit learning again you haven't said a thing to the person right there's no strategy involved there's no cognition involved really at all um, so that you know that's just you know a couple ideas there's also been a really cool study done um, by George Hornby's group where they had um, one leg standing on, like, the I don't know what you call it, like this the side of the treadmill that doesn't move, you know, that
0: the oh, yeah, the, 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 the rim or the edge, the
1: rim, yeah. The, and then, and then you have the leg that's taking the shorter step on the belt, and it's like single leg stepping. And they really found. Um, that there was improvements in step length with that kind of just repeated practice of really that leg stepping individually. Um, and so again, that's just very implicit use-dependent plasticity of, of really focusing on that leg and getting that leg to take that longer step by, 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 by having the other leg essentially just be stationary and that leg really getting pulled back on the treadmill and then having to step forward. So, I mean, those are just some things that anybody could do in the clinic um, at any time that we capitalize on a different form of motor learning that doesn't appear to be as heavily reliant on this fluid cognition.
0: Well, that was a wonderful way to show how without having the big budget to get a split belt treadmill and a VR system and yep. graphics and having those adapt to certain percentages and measures, if you have a piece of Theraband and any typical treadmill where that has a side edge on it, whether it yep. be motorized or not, right, um, you can you can be taking the lessons from this study, which is brilliant because that that fits most most clinics and some people's homes, right? So that's yep. really nice. Um, and talking about dosage, so over and over again, um, at the, the last I recall, and I didn't pull up a, a study and review this right before this interview, but I think isn't it six hundred steps in a session or a a minimum of close to 10,000, isn't it, that that to really make it a learned behavior?
1: Yeah, I mean, this is the challenge, I mean, this is the never ending challenge, right, that we have in in, um, physical therapy is, you know, when we do our studies looking at use dependent plasticity, you know, we're talking about thousands of steps, right, to really see learning through use dependent plasticity. And, you know, it's just, I mean, we're on average, that's the study by Catherine Lang years ago. Um, I was part of that study that showed, I think it, yeah, I think you're right. It's like between six, five and 600 steps on average in a session. Um, I think that was probably that study was done before the time where I think therapists were really focused on repetition. So I I would like to think it's better now, but (laughs) gosh, what, maybe up to 800, a (laughs) thousand. There's just only so many hours in the day. And so I think now, this is where what I what I say to people is I think to think in a physical therapy session that you're gonna do a, a little bit of a lot of different things is probably not the approach that you should be taking. I think we really need to be thinking perhaps about devoting, you know, maybe a lot of our session or all of our session on repeating, 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 whatever skill it is that we're, we're working on with our patient um, and helping the patient understand that, you know, this perhaps if it's gate, this is going to be our focus, right? I know you have goals for your upper extremity. I know you have these goals, but doing, doing you know, 10, 15 of this, 10, 15 of that probably is not capitalizing on the principles of motor learning. So yes. neuroplasticity, so yes, and that's a real shift I think for a lot of therapists.
0: Well, yes, and then how we use our home exercise program. I um I yep. I always struggled with, um you know, you've got uh, like in our student clinics, the students yep. want to use a little bit of everything. And yep. I think they're always worried the patient will stop and go like, is that it? And it's like, no, yep. no, it's hard for them. It's easy for you. Yep. But like, you know, five and 10 exercises in a home exercise program uh, you know, maybe there are deficits in all these areas that that's getting at a little bit, but it, if the overarching goal is gait, yep. you know, how, how do we incorporate some of those principles, but just have them do gait and yep. make it fun, right? Make yep. it salient and, and c- kick in that dopaminergic system somehow where they come back and brag about how many repetitions they did? Um,
1: yeah. Yeah. No way. Not agree. easy.
0: Not easy, but very important. So, okay, there's some, some other wonderful, so we've talked a little bit about guided discovery and the implicit learning. And I think there's another concept in this study um, published in JNPT that uh, uh, took me a little bit to wrap my head around. So I think it'll be worth met, um, talking through. And that's the task switching index. Yeah. So yeah. talk about how that differed between the control group, which was people without stroke, and the stroke group, um, uh, how the big difference you saw wasn't in their ability to adapt, uh, to learn the, the altered walking pattern. It was the switching between the two. Yep. yep. So what is that task switching yeah. index? What exactly makes that up?
1: Yep. So, um, so the task switching is basically, if I, um, if I ask you to walk normally. So I teach you a new pattern, right? And you, and you can produce that pattern. And then I ask you to, to, okay, walk normally now. Um, are you able to go from a newly learned pattern back to your, your normal pattern back to a newly learned pattern? And um, this is essentially what we need to do in everyday life, Right. We see, we're walking along, we see a patch of slippery sidewalk. We need to go from our normal walking pattern to our slippery sidewalk walking pattern. Maybe it's very short you know, steps with our knees flexed. And then when we get out of the patchy sidewalk or the icy patch, we need to get, go back to our normal pattern. And so that's essentially what this task switching index is really measuring. How are you, is someone able to go from one pattern to another? And in this study, um, you know, we saw that, that that was much more difficult for the patients with stroke. Right.
0: right. And, so and so bringing this bringing- back to the clinic, what are some takeaways that uh, you might offer to a clinician to, to work on this if as best we can for this population? Now,
1: I think I think this is an easy one for us because I think most clinicians, uh, you know, do this now in, in the 21st century is, um, really, you've got to practice a variety of tasks, right? You can't just practice straight ahead walking ad nauseum. You need to have people walking, you know, over different surfaces, under different lighting conditions, with different obstacles, both stationary and moving obstacles, that if people in everyday life, people have to change their pattern based on environmental cues. And the only way they get good at that is with practice, because they're Clearly, what we're seeing, you know, in this from this study is that's not something that's something that's impaired post stroke, at least in this group of, of folks. And so you've got you've got to practice it. They've they've got to learn to take those environmental cues and be able to use them to, to generate the appropriate pattern. Um, and the only way to get that is to practice it. Um,
0: Brilliant, and so thank you because that's a wonderful review of task switching and also how <laughs> how we address that clinically. Um, and so so with that, um, thinking about people walking after stroke, one of the things that this study brings to mind that I wanted to get your your thoughts on is uh, some really interesting work using pupillometry. That, mm-hmm. that I've seen. I don't I don't know if you're familiar with any of the pupilometry work. No, so I'm
1: not.
0: Pupilometry is fairly new in physical rehabilitation studies, but it's been used a very long time in psychology studies. Okay. Mm-hmm. And so this crossover is really exciting to me. I, I bumped into a, a, a graduate student who was presenting a poster on it um, okay. a, a handful of years ago, who's now finished her postdoc. Um, but the trajectory is basically this. If you are... Needing to use your cerebrum, mm-hmm. which you shouldn't need to use as an adult walking, right? We don't yeah. think about walking, yeah. um, but it's different for people with Parkinson's and stroke. Yeah. So if if I give you a math problem and you're working actively to, fi- to f- um, answer that math problem, your pupils actually constrict. And then oh, when you give up, if you tell me you're still working on it, but you really have tuned it out and you're not trying anymore, um, I'll, I can know by watching your pupils, this is the funniest thing to think about, because yeah. they'll, they'll, they'll unconstrict or they'll dilate back to their normal size. Gotcha. And so when they measure people with stroke and Parkinson's in their gait, um, or even transfers, they see that. Compared to controls, you mm. get this pupil constriction, and people with stroke and mm-hmm. Parkinson's. And I wonder how you've just done such a beautiful job talking through um, having this repetition and this practice to overcome these deficits of fluid cognition. Um, so I wonder if you'd also see less pupil constriction, or if there'd be mm. another way to show that we're taking up less of that. Uh, so interesting. Kind of, the, the, right that's the costly yep. real estate is yep. it takes so much energy and it and then it poops out on you and it needs a refill when yep. you use your cerebrum which is why uh, I think that's a contributing factor that um, that adds another layer to the difficulty of of you know w- what makes people with stroke fall so often and how do yep. we make it less yeah. Um, is if they have to think about that instead of the things that they need to be thinking about, they're gonna they run out of juice and yep. and that then increases falls yet again.
1: Yep. I, I think that's I think you hit the nail on the head. I think that um well, so during explicit strategic learning, even a healthy control would be using that those prefrontal areas and would be using cognition because that is how you've set the task up, right? you you've you've said, I'm going to be giving you this, 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 I give you, gave you these instructions. I gave you this feedback and you've got to use it. You've got to develop a strategy. I think the problem is, so you've hit on something super interesting, which is that explicit strategic learning works great when you're trying to teach somebody a behavior that needs to be called up under a specific circumstance. Right. So let's talk about the bowler. Right? Somebody's bowling, and you're trying to teach them that you know under these circumstances when there's you know, you know, these these three pins in this position, you know, you want to put this kind of spin on the ball or something, right? And explicit strategic learning is perfect for that because you only need to call it up under those circumstances. So you need to, your brain needs to recognize, here's my circumstances. Now I'm going to pull out this pattern that I learned. In rehab, generally we're trying to teach people a new pattern that we want them to use all the time, Mm -hmm. right? Mm -hmm. So for example, I talked about the short step length. When therapists are teaching people to take a longer step, Their goal is for them that to become their new baseline. They don't want them just to take a longer step when they see the ladder on the floor. They want them to take a longer step all the time. And what they're basically saying is they want it to go from uh, a pattern that, that, that they call up based on environmental cues to their automatic pattern. I consider this sort of the Holy grail. I have no idea. Well, I have some ideas, but there's not a lot of literature on this. How you take something from explicit learning to automatic? Ah,
0: right. Okay. Yes. That's,
1: that, that's, I can teach you something using explicit strategies. This is what we do. It. This is what you're talking about with the performance. And if I bring you back You walk in, you know, in rehab, right? So I I teach you something, you you look great, you know, with your gait, I watch you walk out to the car and you look exactly like you did when you were walking in, right?
0: Right, yes. The bane of so many of our existence, right?
1: Right, (laughs) right. Well, our data shows, not just this paper, but there was a paper published in Neurorehabilitation and Neural Repair, shows is that people with stroke can learn using that strategic, that strategic form of learning. And when I tell them, when they come back in the next day, 24 hours later, and I say, show me that pattern you learned yesterday. They can, they can do it. I mean, they forget, but they can do it, but they don't do it. They don't do it automatically. And so if I'm trying to change their biomechanical movement pattern, I mean, who cares if, if, I'm circling back around now to the pupil thing because the only way they're going to use that pattern is to is to is to use um, cognitive resources to call up right that pattern. That's not what we want.
0: Right. If they have to think about it, they can't live their life. Right. And they're going to be living their life and going into whatever is automatic in their walking pattern because they need to live their life. Exactly. So
1: when we're trying to change their baseline automatic behavior, not their walking pattern for the ice circumstance and their walking, pattern, that's fine. Right. Because that's how you and I do it. We, we learn, oh, this is my ice walking pattern. I see ice. I call it up. And and I bet our pupils would constrict in that circumstance too. Right because we were thinking about Probably. it for a second. Yeah. But then, but that's not usually what we're trying to do in rehab. When we're trying to change somebody's biomechanical pattern, we're trying to change it for good. Right. Right. We're looking for a permanent change in their baseline behavior. That means you have to go from something that was strategically and explicitly learned to automatic. And if you don't do that, the pupils are going to constrict every time. Because they're going to have to bring those cognitive resources to bear.
0: Right, yeah. Did
1: I bring us all the way back around? Did that make sense? It was a very long-winded way of answering your question. But I was trying to tie in this explicit strategic learning and what you're talking about, which is when they're bringing those cognitive resources to bear, it can't be that automatic pattern that we're looking for. No,
0: I I love that example. And I love the walking it around. I think it helps to not skip steps in the thinking of right of the decision making and and where things can go right or wrong, right. And those are all places we can intervene or not. Um, And so taking that back to our control population versus our stroke population. um, And then just looking at motor learning and in general. So, um, you know, I've always learned and I've had some interesting debates with people about, uh, motor learning and uh, sometimes people will kind of believe or not believe that there's a cognitive phase of motor learning. Right. And so when something's a novel task as walking with equal step length after stroke is, Mm -hmm. um, then you have that cognitive. Yep. Component, right? It is that first yep. piece of motor yep. learning, hopefully short-lived, and the person gets it, and then you move on to the automatic, you know, the uh, introducing the variability and and maybe imp- implicit um, practices to help them to guide their discovery in a safe environment. Um, but even in that implicit use of uh, interventions for people post-stroke, I've typically started with a more explicit process, right? Um, Uh, And, and when there's time, when there's the ability not to, right. Um, And I love the example of the TheraBand on the Mm -hmm. thigh where you tell them nothing, Um, you know, somewhere in there, there's typically a cognitive component, but then we can move past that. But I wonder, um, I would love your perspective on, okay, we've got our controls and then we've got the separate population of people with compromised fluid cognition. How might you change the training for one versus the other?
1: Yeah, so I think, I think that when you have, so I think what you're talking about that cognitive stage, I think you're, when you're, when you're giving people, when you're, when you're setting up your task to use explicit strategic learning, by definition, you're asking them to use cognitive, you're asking them to to be in that cognitive phase, right? And so I think that people don't think about that, they, they think, well, okay, they're gonna they're gonna move past the cognitive phase, and as long as you're giving them those instructions and that feedback, you're kind of, to some extent, keeping them. At, at least this is what our our studies would show. You're kind of keeping them a little bit in that strategic phase, right? Um, and it may be it may require less cognitive resources. Um, and so that's the first thing that I would say, right? And then I would say on top of that, um, how much they can really benefit from that form of learning depends on how intact their fluid cognition is. And so even though, I think we often think about starting there, right? We think about starting in that cognitive phase, it may not, that that. it just may not be effective. We may need to, to really jump to implicit forms of learning, which you would might think of as kind of later, we might need to start there because if they don't have the cognition, the cognitive abilities to, to, to take advantage of that of that feedback and of that instruction, I mean, you're just not gonna get the learning you're looking for.
0: Right, I love that. So, so taking the concepts of implicit learning and explicit learning and taking the usually Presented very linear cognitive through automatic stages of learning, um, we could start to make a whole new diagram of what that would look like. Uh, and maybe you're saying skip the cognitive stage altogether when possible, especially in populations where fluid cognition is compromised.
1: And I think about implicit and explicit learning, it's all on a continuum. I think there's probably, so I will tell you that in our Task that we're talking about here, where it was, we designed it to be explicit and strategic. There is a small component, we think, based on some pieces that I won't talk about and don't talk about in the paper and won't get into here. But just suffice it to say, we've done basically some probes in the middle of the acquisition phase where we think there is some implicit use dependent plasticity happening. Right. Oh. So even in a task that we've done everything we can possibly do to make it as explicit and strategic as possible, there's implicit learning. So these processes are happening at the same time. It's just which which is dominating. And um, they're all kind of on. A, it's all kind of on a continuum. Any task you can come up with probably is on a continuum from implicit to explicit. And so when I think of the cognitive phase of learning, I think of that as the phase where people are really attending but if you can not if you can set up the task so that it's more implicit there's less cognition required even in that cognitive phase if i'm making any sense
0: yes yeah right? it's because it's a matter of like a continuum or degrees exactly right? you ramp right it up right. or you ramp it down it yeah exactly exactly
1: and so i don't i think of everything sort of on a continuum now. Um, you know, from from something that's purely implicit to something that's purely explicit, which probably doesn't exist.
0: (laughs) Brilliant. Now, I know we're running short on time, but there's two other concepts um, and and trajectories of research that your study and this conversation has made me think of. So one is the optimal study or the optimal um, concept. Um, And so I I, I guess we'll start with that one. Um, Related to this work, uh, and and looking at the because there's a lot of discussion of using optimal now both in sports and and in our mm-hmm. our DPT programs mm-hmm. and and in the mm-hmm. clinic um, where would you say this fits or, or do you see any crossover or conversation between that research and and this study?
1: Yeah, I think I mean I think for me I'm I think I think I'm kind of coming at this from a slightly different um, motor learning approach where I'm really, I'm really trying to understand um, uh, sort of these the pieces, I, I guess, if you will, rather than um, I think of optimal as really um, addressing uh, the more global aspects of learning. and. I I think the work we're doing right now is kind of we're really trying to separate out these different pieces and these different forms of learning. um, So that we can because we have a specific goal, which is that ultimately we want to understand really specifically, like if I have processing speed deficits, what's what kind of what type of learning would I probably benefit most from. So we're kind of down at that level. Um, so I don't know if that answers your question, but I, I, think, I think we're just, I think I'm, I'm kind of approaching it s- slightly differently. Um, yeah. Just no, from a that, research standpoint.
0: Absolutely. No, I think that's a, a very, very solidly answers that question. So the other area of research that um, I think we're all very aware of now is the the VR. And I, mm-hmm. and I always, I, I always hear Steve Kramer in my head talking about yeah. the little blue haired ladies pulling the cranks in Las Vegas. And if we could get our stroke patients to be excited like that, to yeah. take their medications and do their home exercise program. Um, and of course, NIH is like, well, that doesn't sound ethical. And yeah. you know, what's one of those?
1: <laughs> <Yep>. <laughs>
0: but, but that dopaminergic system is so yep. powerful. And so um, uh, VR seems to be one of the big areas of success and kicking in that system and having people really ramp up and be a lot more adherence and and sometimes do extra in their home exercise program, which is wonderful. So can you talk a little bit about that? Um, And you do have the visual display screen, if if, if that might be adding to that, but um, cross over there.
1: Yeah. So I really think virtual reality, the really amazing thing about virtual reality is I think it's a fantastic way to get a lot of implicit learning, right? Because you basically immerse people in an environment where they have to problem solve and you can set up the environment in the way that you want them to problem solve without necessarily giving them a lot of instruction, right? Because a lot of these virtual environments can be set up very intuitively. Um, So I think, and and also the game-like feature of it, I think is, is, cool I think the idea that you can make it you can have someone on a treadmill right where things can be very controlled you can you can really control safety but have them in an environment that is more salient um and that can be more rewarding I think VR has tremendous tremendous possibilities um right now there have been a lot of there have been a lot of small studies done I think we're I think we're getting to the point now where I'd like to start to see some like larger clinical trials done. There's a lot of ingredients in VR. And I think one of the challenges we have is understanding which of these active ingredients are critical and perhaps for whom. Um, And so I'd love to see some work kind of unpacking that as well. But I think VR from a motor learning perspective, I think is, Offers tremendous opportunity um, to, to really use lots of different forms of learning, particularly implicit forms of learning, in a salient,
0: rewarding way. That sounds like boring, a, right? Boring. Yeah, boring is not good, right? Yeah. So, so that sounds like a call out to neidler and Nins to yes. fund a big pragmatic study, multi-site, um, yeah, yep. in, in a. It sounds like you'd be help be very willing to help design that and, and help it get off the ground. I think that'd be very beneficial. Well, Darcy, I could talk to you all afternoon about mm-hmm. motor learning and performance versus learning and the aspects of your study. Um, but I think we, we should let you take a break and get back to the rest of your work day um, and hope to Uh, see what your next study is about, which I think I got some glimpses of in some of the things you mentioned. (laughs) Um, Looking forward to that, and I wish you good research, and um, as we end, are there active studies that you are recruiting for that people should know about that we can include um, on the webpage or any other things you want people to know as we end?
1: Well, thank you, Julie. First of all, I I could talk all day about this as well, Um, and And it's just been a real pleasure. Um, We are recruiting, we are continuing on with our work, trying to dissect more um, about um, specific deficits in cognition related to specific forms of motor learning. And we have an NIH um, funded study for that. So we're continuing to recruit for that. And we're doing some continuing our work with moderate to high intensity um, walking training in patients with stroke. And we're always continuing to recruit for those studies. So, um, you know, if if people, Folks out in Podcast Land um, have folks that live in the greater tri-state area: Delaware, Pennsylvania, New Jersey. Um, you know, certainly they can can hop on the University of Delaware Physical Therapy webpage and see see a lot of what we have going on, and um, we we love to talk to them.
0: Excellent. Well, thank you. It's been a delight, and uh, I love talking with you about this. Hope to do it again soon.
1: All right. Thanks so much, Julie. Thank you for listening to this interview brought to you by the Balance and Fall Special Interest Group of the Academy of Neurologic Physical Therapy. For more information on this special interest group or the Academy, visit www.neuropt.org.